1: and their
2: essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 4th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome to Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you back on the show, another summer show. And we have got two guests, but they're going to come on together because they're both from Split Ticket. Like Chai Jane and Harrison Lavelle are both going to come on at the same time. Been a been a while since we've had one of these uh, double guests talking about something that's really exciting because they wrote an article about a month ago talking about uh, they really dug into the generational divide where younger voters are voting much more Democratic in bigger numbers. Some older voters are trending more Republican, and we'll get into some of that too. Um, so we'll talk you know, at length about that with them here in about 20 minutes. But until then, something we've been kind of simmering on and just hadn't gotten deep into, um, but we need to, is the U.S. Senate map, if you will. And there's been a bunch of polls. And actually, Tim, before I get too deep into that, I want to welcome into the show uh, Catherine Smith. Evening, Catherine. Sorry,
3: I'm a little, sorry, I'm a little late. But
2: here I am. All right, good to have you here. So, um, well, let's start into the Senate map. And, you know, I did see um, Steve Kornacki and Chuck Todd on a YouTube clip talking about, you know, what a tough map this was for Democrats. They said, "Look, these are Republican pickup opportunities." They pointed to West Virginia. They pointed to Montana. They pointed to Ohio. They pointed to, you know, seemingly Arizona. And uh, possibly Pennsylvania. Um, You know, I think that last one's a little more stretch. They said for Democrats, there's really two states you can even realistically even think about, and that's Texas and Florida. And so that's kind of the lay of the map. And if you know a lot about that, there's – I've mentioned several states that voted for Republican candidates, for president, the other senator, for governor. And the two that are Democratic pickup possibilities are pretty much virtually all Republican statewide officials. So that tells you just as an overview of how tough this map is. Um, Tim, is the situation as bad as I laid it out or maybe not quite as grim?
4: No, it's pretty grim. Uh, We're defending 23 seats and – like West Virginia is uh, one of Donald Trump's strongest states, and they're running a very popular governor in the Republican primary up there against Joe Manchin, who is not particularly popular with uh,
3: anyway. much of anybody <laughs> right
4: now up there. And uh, there there's some other places where we got trouble. Uh, Texas, you know, maybe, but... Uh, the early polling, I'd say, Cruz has about a five point lead up there, and in Florida, you, you know the weakened state of the Democratic Party up there, and Democrats right now are are, are having trouble coalescing around or any candidate to uh, to even defeat Senator Scott. Uh, I mean, when you're talking about trying to get Dwayne Wade who lives in California and, you know, and Grant Hill to, to, who doesn't want to run to run. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, is pretty, it's pretty tough. So, um, and, and we've got to defend some, some rough places. We, we really do looking at this polling, and uh, it, uh we could, we we're going to have trouble in Nevada. We're going to have trouble in, Hold in Montana. Um, it, it, it's, it's Arizona's going to be tough if it's a three-way race. Tammy Baldwin's going to have trouble in Wisconsin. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it's going to be hard to hold the Senate when you've only got a, a two-seat lead, guys. It's you—you you did not exaggerate, David.
2: And we will go by you know state by state here in a minute. Um, Catherine, same kind of question there. How bleak or, or arduous is this task for Democrats to hold the Senate?
3: Well, you know, it's you know me. I'm, I'm, I uh, I tend to uh, I tend to question looking at things so far ahead, but um, it does it does look tough and. Um, We're going to, it's going to take a lot of money, of course, and um, that's always a challenge, uh, especially in a presidential year, but so we're, you know, it's going to be tough, but you know, I'm optimistic, you know, I'm a a Pollyanna, Um, and maybe there'll be some, you know, I, I think a lot depends on, you know, who's running for president, how that goes, what kind of coattails we have. Uh, with Biden and what kind of um, you know enthusiasm we have they have on the on the Republican side. So there's a lot of dynamics, of course, in every um, race. But I think it'll be interesting to look at state by state how we're doing. So, um, but you know, ma'am, I tend to be optimistic. So.
2: Yes. Yeah, so let's at my go own, ahead at my well- own cost. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I like to try to be a realist, not overly negative, but be a realist. So let's go ahead and take this state by state. Let's go in the um, south – so, I'm sorry, west and south up to the north and the east. We'll kind of tackle it that way. Of course, we're not going to go where we're I mean, of course, California could go sideways in their jungle primary, but odds are that's not a real issue. So I think the first one, given that geographic layout – is Arizona. Now, um, you have an interesting uh, dynamic. Uh, Kirsten Sinema, who we've talked about at length, she has um, become an independent, and odds are she runs third party as an independent. So you have that. Then you'll have a Democratic primary, but Ruben Gallego, who is a congressman from Arizona, a Democratic congressman, seems to have kind of boxed out the field um, to where he may be just absolute odds-on favorite to be the Democratic nominee. Then finally, you have the Republican side. I do think you'll have a contested primary, but Carrie Lake did announce that she is interested and and she's going to seek that seat. So I guess we really need to start there. Um, Catherine, what do you think the likelihood that Carrie Lake is the nominee?
3: Oh, I think that's pretty likely. Yeah, I think that's likely.
2: Tim, same question. Uh, likelihood
3: of her being the nominee?
4: Oh, very, very likely. There's only one announced candidate, and it's a small county sheriff out there. There's a couple of other people looking at this job, but uh, one, one of them just looking at the job actually lost the gubernatorial primary to Lake last year. She's a rock star amongst her base. That's plenty enough to get her the nomination with little sweat.
2: Yeah, I think it's the same dynamic. There's a lot of Republicans that know that candidates like Kerry Lake and Donald Trump are really problematic in the general, but they constitute a minority of the Republican base, and therefore they can't stop them. So it's kind of like if Donald Trump can win the presidential nomination, then Carrie Lake can win the the Senate nomination in Arizona. So therefore she kind of starts out where in a head-to-head race, I think that would create an incredible opportunity for Democrats. Because she is pretty toxic to um, soft Republicans, independent voters, and she's going to drive out the Democratic base, not that there's going to be a lot of worry about that being a presidential year. So now uh, let's kind of start out with also the other known quantity, Ruben Gallego. He seems to be pretty popular um, across the Democratic spectrum. It's kind of one of those – Interesting situations where he may be a little more moderate than some Democratic candidates we see, but his style is one that progressives really like. And so um, he's not going to have problems uh, coalescing the base. I get that sense, at least the true Democratic base. Um, Catherine, do you think he has any issues? on either far left or to the maybe center part of the party um, with Democrats? Not
3: not that I'm aware of, but I don't follow him that closely. But I do think he's, um, you know, I mean, it's going to be an interesting race with three prominent candidates running, I think.
2: Yeah. Tim, uh, thoughts on Ruben Gallego as the Democratic standard bearer? Well, he'll he will be
4: running. He he's no moderate. He'll be running well to the left of uh, Kirsten Cinema on many of the well, issues. He'll be running about where she used to be when she was yeah, in was the house. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, the the progressives will, will love him out there. I'm not sure what the center. Uh, moderate voters are going to do in that state, those who are not Democrats. Uh, what we would love to have is is uh, if is going to run, let, let her pull some moderate Republicans away. But yeah, Gaiga would be an excellent choice, and he is going to be the Democratic nominee if, if if the polling's right. So.
2: Yeah, and, and I will say this. I get the sense he is an ethos about him. Mean, you know, Chuck Rocha, friend of the show, is a big proponent of his. Um, he's kind of a working-class Democrat. He kind of has that uh, grit to him where he um, kind of breaks through some of that stereotype that, you know, the Democrats, oh, they've forgotten the union folks, the people work with their hands. Also, he's been a critic of the use of the term Latinx. He's been very much – and he is a Latino man, uh, so he's got a place where he can really have an opinion on it. He's kind of uh, come out against that. Uh, pretty strongly as well I mean, not that's a big political issue But it's kind of a style thing Now, the puzzle piece That's the most complicated To this whole thing Is what does Kirsten Cinema do Is her brand Become so much about her, her, her That she's kind of toxic To everybody Or does that style of I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican I'm an independent, work willing to work both sides Actually get a sizable chunk of the middle. Uh, That, to me, is a very complex question. And, um, Kim, any thoughts on that?
4: Here's what her people think. Uh, According to registration in that state, just under 35% of the voters are Republican. 30% are Democrats. And 35% are independent voters. Her people think that she can ride the middle, pull a lot of those independents, pull away a few Democrats, pull away a few moderate Republicans, and cobblestone a victory together. And she's got $10 million in the bank to do it with, so money ain't going to be a problem. Uh, early polls showing her running, As a matter of fact, are Buddy Tom Jensen had one in the field recently showed her running with about percent of the vote at the moment um it, i I really don't know how to lay this out and and neither do the experts of that because they've never seen nothing like this not a not a scenario like this in arizona, so i don't i i don't really know what to tell you. I still believe she'd mainly function as a spoiler for somebody though if she ran.
2: Yeah, I actually saw a poll also that was shared that was supposed to be in a Republican National Committee, um, Senatorial Committee internal that showed her 20 points. It showed Kerry Lake, I'm sorry, uh, probably like, uh, with two points ahead of go in a head-to-head <laughs> race he had one, but then in a um, three-way race, Senator was getting 20 points. So somewhere between 15 and 20% at this point. Um, Catherine... What do you think the the you know the highest possible or lowest possible vote total is for Kirsten Centerman' three way race?
3: Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I was just wondering: do we know? Do they have a um, do they have a runoff requirement, or is it just whoever gets the most votes? No,
4: as a as an independent, she'd she'd be on the fall ballot. So
3: yeah. it'd be a three-way I mean, race if
4: she runs.
3: And then yeah, whoever plurality. gets the most votes wins?
4: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whoever gets okay. the most votes wins. They don't they don't have any runoff thing like, like we have.
3: Okay. I was just wondering about that. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, I'm not very good at guessing stuff like that. I, I'd say she'd probably be lucky to get, you know, 25, 30 percent, but that could be a really a big hurt for the Democrats and for the Republicans. Like Tim said, she's going to be a spoiler for somebody.
2: Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I think,
3: you know, typically third-party
2: candidates evaporate. Early on, they're polling stronger because people said, oh, well, that looks novel. It kind of mixes things up, but closer to election day, people really – you know, feel that our system is a two-party game as much as simple. a complain about it, and they go gravitate to one of those top two parties. So I think that fifteen percent number, uh, you know, may dwindle down into the single digits. And the the trick is where will that come from? Because I could see, you know, the Democratic base. You said that was about what percent of um, Arizona? Tim thirty what thirty. 30%
4: of the registered voters there are Democrats. Now, you know independents, what they do. They they register as independents, and then they just about always vote one way or the other.
3: Yeah. yeah. So
4: if Jensen's polling is right, uh,
2: right now
4: Gago's sitting there with a little bit above 40%.
2: Yeah, and I think I think actually and another thing and we'll probably talk about it with our guests, a lot of these younger voters uh, they're probably more liberal than people that maybe registered as Democrats and they register as independent. And so for you're gonna add some of that independent base. I see Gago being able to hold a really strong core and you may see some Republicans that are really turned off by Lake and they might have voted for a Doug Ducey type Democrat, a John McCain type Democrat, uh, um, who was the gentleman that left a Flake um, years ago. Yeah, from yeah, yeah.
0: They might have
2: voted for all of them, yeah. but they're just not going to vote for for Lake. And so they'll just um, maybe those are the where you know Kirsten Sinema gets more of her votes in her third place finish. So that's going to be. A fascinating race. I mean, if you told me it's going to be the most interesting race wire-to-wire, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, But, I mean, there are other ones that could pass it, but it it has the odds on favor to being the one to watch because of that, you know, dynamic of three candidates. Well, let's see if we can get into one more. We're going to move up north all the way to the Canadian border in Montana, and John Tester running for reelection. Um, Montana is a Republican trending state, voted for Republicans at the presidential level, the governor le- the governorship, um, and then also the other Senate seat. But John Tester has won multiple terms because on a personal level, John Tester is likable and connects with the average Montana citizen, although people have become more and more straight party voters, and that becomes the dilemma. Uh, Tim, do you think John Tester can pull off, really, I guess in many ways, another upset victory?
4: Well, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy because it's not. He's running in a presidential election year in a state that backed Trump by 16 points um, four years ago. So it's going to be that to deal with. Now, he does have his own well-established brand. You know that that he is that that you uh discuss, but uh it's gonna be hard, and there's some pretty good candidates right uh lining up to run against him, including uh matt rosendale who who uh, ran against him in twenty eighteen um so it, it's it's uh kester's got a lot of money but it's 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 gonna be very tough to hold hold that state
2: yeah catherine um he won originally in two thousand and six, a very democratic year. he won reelection in twenty twelve, which would have been on a presidential ballot, probably a better apples to apples comparison,
3: and then he won
2: reelection in twenty eighteen, which was another democratic trend year so he's had one year in which he had to kind of run against his state's typical lean, and that'd be twenty twelve um but it was you know. Uh, you know, uh, maybe Mitt Romney and, and Donald Trump were different folks for the Montana voters. Uh, what's your take on how that race falls out?
3: Yeah, I have to agree with him that it's going to be tough for him, but um, I'm again optimistic. I think he's a great candidate, and like you said, he's got a brand, and I think he's uh, well liked. Obviously, he's been reelected several times um, in Montana, so. Um, it's going to be tough, and it's going to take some money, but I think we I'm i am optimistic that he can hold on to that seat.
2: Yes, um, I actually think right now, I mean, things can change because we cut a while before that election happens. I, I actually like his chances. Um, on a personal level, if you just took away party labels and just had to have somebody that they like, I think they like John Tester, and he can actually – Bat above the Democratic average in Montana, and win that. Um, it's, it's definitely a better shot than some others we'll talk about um, later on. So right now, let's put a pin in this discussion, and this may be one of those things that bleeds into two uh, shows for all we know, and welcome on at least one of our guests, and I don't want to get into the technicalities of our um, Kudzu Vine board, but I know we have at least one of our guests on the line. They may have some kind of technological wizardry going on and they're on the same line. But welcome into the show, either Harrison or Lakshya.
3: Hey,
2: how's it going? This is Harrison. Hey.
1: I have Lakshya on the line with me, so we're oh, I,
2: I thought that might be the case, that y'all had somehow gotten onto one line and, and called in together. I love it. If y'all are good with it, we are. Uh, Great to have, like great to have you back on the show. And Harrison, great to have you on for the first time.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks.
2: Thanks for having us. Yes. Well, let's start off right there. Uh, Harrison, this is your first time. Before we get into the the reason that we had y'all come on with a split-ticket article, tell us and our listeners a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, so um, my name is Harrison, and um, I'm a college student, and I co-founded Split Ticket with uh, Armand Thomas and, of course, Lockshot, who's also here. And during the 2022 cycle, I focused on our House elections coverage, Uh, but, of course, all three of us kind of dabble across the board, and we have Leon now as well with Split Ticket, who's a partner, so it's a it's a great experience, and we really just got into it on the side because of our interests in politics, independent of our everyday lives.
2: Yes, now did I, I heard you correctly? You're a college student, and you're a co-founder of this organization, Split Ticket, who has not just started a week ago. It has a little bit of track record. Did you start this early in your college career, your high school career? Um, You know,
1: lay some uh, timeline on this. Yeah, so it started back in 2021, in the fall of 2021, uh, which would have been the end of my freshman year. And we actually had somewhat of an inauspicious start, but at the end of the day, we ended up uh, growing very quickly because of the content that we offered to the election community and uh, the fact that our stuff is digestible by people who... They just have an everyday knowledge of elections and aren't full-blown political junkies. So I think that's helped, over the last few years, grow the, the uh, watch list, if you will, for the
2: ticket. Yes. Now, um, I wanted to kind of get into the article pretty deeply, but I know that Tim's got a litany of questions. Catherine's got questions as well. So I'm going to actually not talk about the core of the or ask about the core of the article ask kind of a little side question then let them get deeper into it I, and actually i saw i read the article thoroughly when y'all wrote it a few weeks ago but then i um also saw something on meet the press where they talked to john Del Volpe um and they talked about the uh you know different generations of voters and much is made of the baby boomers but i saw this really interesting fi- finding of gen x where um through 2012 um, Gen X had always been Democratic voters, and then in the past, from 2012 to 2022, um, Gen X has moved a double-digit amount of points to the Republicans and now are Republican-leaning. Um, I have a theory of why that's the case, but before I talk about my theory, because um, you're going to answer it, do y'all, did y'all in you study kind of find out why did Generation X move? Um, from the Democratic column to the Republican column?
0: Well, I think some of that is, um, you know, in 2012, as 2012 to 2022, there's a bunch of things that change in politics. Obviously, you had Donald Trump's ascendancy and whatnot. But I I think there's two things at play here. Number one is that the pool of non-voters in Generation X is – a little bit you know they were pretty Republican and I think in general um, non voters in American politics tend to be a little bit more Republican than not in like an age cohort um, I'm not talking about racial splits but like you know when Millennials are like people say Millennials are voting for Biden by like you know 25 points that's true but there's young voters have some of the lowest rate to turn out. as you get older more people start voting more regularly And it stands to reason that there is some regularizing that happens because more and more people start voting. And as more people start voting, it kind of gets dragged back towards more of an equilibrium. That's one thing. The other thing is that as people grow older, there is a small type of a conservative shift. But also, at the same time, political affiliation is much more stable than people think. So it's not like it takes you from like D plus 30 to like R plus 30. The margins that happen, you might get a, like a 10-point, 15-point shift maybe, but at the end of the day, what that really means is like maybe 7 in 100, maybe 10 in 100 people are changing their political affiliation as they get older, which is actually not nearly as much as what people say. You know, the course around this is that like, oh, well, y'all will start as liberals, but all of you are going to end up as conservative by the time you're 30. And I'm like, that's not really true. That might be true for like 10% of people, but it's not really the case overall for most people. So I think the reason Gen X has moved is partly because of non-voters entering the voting pool, partly because of just, you know, some age-related conservatives are manifesting. But I think also Donald Trump, just in general, um, some of what he appeals to, Happened to resonate with folks who were, you know, of a specific income level, of a specific demographic, of a specific, um, specific voting age, or like working age. Um, especially if you worked in manufacturing, you got started young, and you saw your jobs disappear. You know, uh, people who hadn't come up through like seeing unions being as strong as they once were. So I think that was why Gen X was left as a very ripe target for Donald Trump and the GOP then. Does that
2: make sense? It makes total sense, and guess what? I don't have to tell my theory, because that is my exact theory, that most of the Gen Xers that were voting for Clinton, voting for Gore, Obama, Kerry, they kept voting for Democrats. All those people that weren't voting showed up, added to the Gen X numbers, but then skewed it right. And uh, I did also hear this, that it's the smallest – Voting group percentage-wise now it may you know, of course the older Generations as there's less of them because of death they may become smaller But it's the as far as when they were at the peak voting power. They're the smallest demographic strand. So it's not as important uh, a data point as it would be well That was my question kind of a little bit off topic because I know this is more about younger voters so I'm going to pass it to Tim and then Catherine for more questions about those age groups.
4: Yeah, good evening, gentlemen. Thank you both for being on with us tonight. And uh, I will probably address each one of you by name, uh, depending on what the question is. Now, I'd like to start with Mr. Lavelle. Um, independent voters may register as independents, but the data shows that they normally – are either independent Democrats or independent Republicans. They vote one party or the other most of the time. So does your data show which way young independent voters are trending right now, or are they trending as a group at all?
1: So I would say the main conclusion from our article on young voters, and this was one of multiple articles that we've done on young voters. I guess I'd start with – One article that Laksha did back in 2022, uh, questioning whether it's normal for young voters to be so democratic. And it it looked at the average partisan lean for each presidential election between 1976 and 2020, between voters aged 18 to 29. And what you saw is that in 1976, uh, voters in that uh, demographic preferred Jimmy Carter by about one point. Uh, and if you fast forward to an election like 2008, uh, Laksha and I were just talking about this earlier, but President Obama, perhaps the best president when it comes to appealing to young voters in modern times, um, won. It was a D plus 27 demographic, whereas in 2020, it was a D plus 20 demographic. So over time, we've seen young voters definitely moving pretty definitively to the left. And the other thing that's been interesting is between 1976 and 2008, with the exit poll data that we have available, we've been able to see the shift in partisan lean for that age demographic 12 years after their first election. And also for 1976 through 1996, partisan lean 24 years after the first election. And you generally see a shift towards the right. Um, of these voters as they age out in that initial young demographic of, of about five points. Now, the shift has become a little bit more stark in uh, 2004 and 2008 because young voters on the whole were more democratic to begin with. So instead of going from D plus 1 to uh, R plus 5 24 years later, you would go from something like D plus 30 to D plus 15 12 years later. Um, and I think that ties into the generational cliff, just briefly, because I know Glockcher probably has some thoughts to add to this as well. Um, but one of the main points that we made with that article was that we're not forecasting, you know, the demise of the Republican Party. We're basically saying that young voters, at the moment, if you want to look at um, um, young independents, for example, we did a piece on them in North Carolina, and I think generally what you'd find is. If most of them had to pick between one party or the other, especially if they're young women, it's going to be the Democratic Party. And I think it's going to be that you're seeing, uh, at least for now, the demographic as a whole um, preferring the Democrats uh, at an increasing rate. Now, the question is, um, is that going to last uh, in the long run? And I don't really think that uh, we have enough information to, to say that, you know, it's going to stop all of a sudden. But it's something that we're definitely going to have to look out for. Um, And the whole, you know, the kind of underlying purpose of the the article was to show uh, that Republicans do have to take notice of young voters because if they assume Mm -hmm. that young voters of today will act like young voters of years past in terms of getting conservative, getting more conservative as time goes by to the same degree, it's uncertain that's
4: going to be the case. Okay, now, I'd like to ask you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I would like to ask you a question. About the article that uh, Mr. Lavelle just referred to. Th- mm-hmm. That article uh, states that young voters in rural areas continue to be very conservative, as, as their yeah. uh, parents and grandparents would be. Does that suggest that this urban and rural divide will continue and maybe be permanent
0: so i think that's a really important thing so um what we see over and over is that you know people tend to people look at you know a lot of different angles on american politics urban rural is one of the prominent ones that's gained coverage and a lot of people say oh well the youth are going to be different in these areas I mean that's true to some degree in that like, you know, young rural voters might be slightly more democratic than old rural voters in some places, but like you're talking about like R plus sixty to R plus fifty. These are still mm-hmm. extremely Republican, um, voters in, you know, rural counties like in rural Iowa for example, or, you know, in rural West Virginia. These are places where in general, you see a lot of young Republicans. It's just not true that all young voters are Democrats. And I think what I think there's one thing here that I think is really important to look at, which is that if you have in one area, you know, rural voters, the R plus 60 when they're older, and the younger generation is R plus 50. And then in the urban areas, we see like, you know, older voters might be say like D plus two and younger voters are like D plus 20. I'm just throwing out numbers. Um, just to Mm -hmm. make the point, think about the Delta here that's happening. The Delta between the first group and the second for the older voters is like 60 Mm -hmm. points Mm -hmm. and the Delta between the younger group, right? You're dealing with R plus 50 versus D plus 20. That's 70. So you're, you know, you're seeing more of a polarization thing kick up because it goes both ways, because um, this – the younger generation in cities is much more – and in urban areas is much more democratic than the older generation in those areas is. And the, in the rurals, even if they stay stagnant or if they're slightly more democratic or slightly more republican – you're really driving up that differential gap so much because young urban voters are just so democratic and young rural voters are still pretty, pretty Republican. And that's why I think it's going to end up, I think just showcasing that this type of urban rural divide is here to stay people in areas vote the way they do for a very specific set of reasons. And I mean, I don't want to get into the validity of those reasons because I think everyone has their own reasons for voting the way they do. But at the end of the day, the net result is that as millennials and Gen Z take over more of the electorate, you're going to see an even bigger gap in rural polarization, Okay. urban-rural so, polarization.
4: Yeah, so, so let me stay with you, Lockshed, uh, because I want to ask you this. You just released your initial presidential uh, ratings for 2024, and you have North yeah. Carolina as a toss-up state. Now, is North Carolina, when you think about that state with its urban and rural areas, is that the sort of state where the generational gap could actually decide who
0: wins there in
4: 2024?
0: So if I'm understanding your question correctly, it's will the generational impact of, you know, older voters maybe aging out, more millennials, Gen Z right. taking over the electorate? Yeah. Will that prove a difference? I think victory has a 1,000 fathers and defeat has a 1,000 um, has a thousand culprits. So North Carolina is a state that, honestly, all of us would be very surprised if it was decided by more than 2% in either direction in 2024. And I think uh-huh. when you get to the races of that close of a margin, okay, maybe you're thinking about youth turnout as like maybe you could juice it like a percent, right? But that's like that would be half of a victory margin right there. And I think like... I think North Carolina is going to be decided by less than a percent in 2024 in either direction. Um, I Whoa. think Biden would win it versus Trump, lose it against DeSantis. That's just me. But I think when you're dealing with margins that thin, I think absolutely one thing that you're going to look, to, look for is could the generational gap have fixed it you know, for one mm-hmm. party? And I, I think absolutely it will be an angle. I, I don't think it will be the main angle for sure because we're really just talking about things at the margins. But when it's a state this close, everything matters. Now, one thing in North Carolina, just to briefly touch on, is that young, the delta between young registered voters and older voters is not as big. Some of that has to do with registration lag. Some of that has to do with you know maybe just the fact that there's a lot of rural Republicans and rural young Republicans in North Carolina and a lot of white young Republicans. But Mm -hmm. they're still more democratic than not. And so maybe you're only dealing with like half a percent, third of a percent, a percent max. But like I said, when a state's that close, yeah, it matters. Because how Mm. many millions would you spend to get half a percent in North Carolina if you're a presidential candidate? A lot.
4: Yeah, really. Okay, one more question, this to Mr. Lavelle, and then we am going to pass it over to Catherine for some more questions. Uh, something I find curious in all of this, Mr. Lavelle, is the fact that the Republican Party doesn't seem to be, shall we say, doing anything to address this growing problem that they have with younger voters. Does your data show exactly what the Republican Party needs to do to address this historical shift to to young voters? Uh, does it take a huge overhaul of, of their issue stances or, or, or what?
1: So that's a very interesting question. It's one that I actually think about quite a lot. So um, obviously the data doesn't provide any direct inferences into what we'd recommend the GOP do, but we can infer based off of what it says, what the GOP should focus on. And one of the major asymmetries among young voters, um, but also among voters as a whole, is uh, differences in preference by sex, so differences between men and women in terms of which parties they prefer. Those are obviously mm-hmm. much more pronounced among young voters. Now, mm-hmm. in 2022, one of the, pri- one of the predominant issues, um, and long one of the peak cultural issues, and I'm not passing any personal judgment On my stances on any of these issues But uh, was the abortion question After the mm-hmm. Dobbs decision And I think that that was definitely The most visible social issue That Democrats were using to Criticize Republicans nationwide Even in states where abortion Was codified in state law And therefore not at risk As a result of the Dobbs decision So I would say mm-hmm. long term Generally speaking Republicans should If they're going to keep the, the same stances on abortion And perhaps um, Other cultural issues That they perhaps don't stress Those issues as much, especially when they're Conducting youth outreach, because I think While you have plenty of young Conservative Republican voters In rural areas and even in other parts of the Country who would agree uh, With the pro-life agenda, I would say That taking a more moderate tone Would help a lot with um, Not just young men in suburbs And urban areas, but most of all with young women who are um, the GOP's hardest pull, if you will. That's what the data suggests. So I would say that social issues are the main
4: thing the GOP should concentrate on um, when it comes to updating Uh, its brand. All right. Makes plenty of sense. I thank you for that. And I'm going to send it over to Catherine for some more questions. Catherine?
3: Hey, thanks a lot for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. It's fun having two guests. We don't usually have two guests, so it's really great. Um, Tim actually asked a lot of the questions that I was going to ask, but I, I can still uh, come up with some additional questions. I'd like to focus a little bit more on these issues. I know you, it's not part of your data, but I, I do wonder if, if the issues do have an impact I mean, maybe we, we can't even say, but I just—it just feels like the abortion issue, the gun issue, um, some of the environmental issues. I just wonder, um, as as the populace, you know, we we're talking about aging and becoming more conservative, which has always been a kind of um, expectation. Though I find it interesting because in my in my world most of my friends become more liberal as they've aged but i think that's just cuz i live i have weird friends but um do you think that the with the emphasis on um like abortion and reproductive justice and um guns and uh environmentalism that that might may be an exception those three issues may be an exception for this uh you know, expectation of becoming more conservative as they, as we age? Because those have been issues for these young people for so long.
1: If I may, I would say briefly that yes, I think especially the abortion issue could pose a valid exception. I think you do have a lot of individuals who might, obviously oppose uh, unpopular measures like, say, partial birth abortion, which was banned by Congress in the early 2000s and then sustained by the Supreme Court. Um, but generally, I think um, women across the political spectrum, polling suggests that a majority of women, including Republican women, including older Republican women, uh, do accept that some access to abortion is justified. And that's why I think in general, on an issue like that, it would not just help the Republicans with young voters, especially young women to change their messaging on it, but also to be a little bit more moderate uh, in general, I think it would help them with the electorate as a whole. So I, I agree that certain issues I think transcend the um, this effect whereby younger voters become more conservative as they, as they age. So I think that's actually a really good
3: point. Um, well, and, and I mean, I, I mean, it's more than just women. It's something like seventy percent of those polled, of voters polled, believe that there should be some access to abortion. So it's 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 a crazy, very narrow margin that has pushed this issue so far. It's, but that's a whole right. other discussion. <laughs> um, and are there are there is there anything that we have that neither Tim or I haven't asked? About that you think was particularly interesting or curious about this data that you've compiled?
0: I think you guys answered most of it. I think the only thing that I would say is that um, it's extremely unusual for... um, Well, I mean, it's not just that it's unusual for Democrats to have such an advantage with young voters. I think one of the main things is that... There's a huge, I think, misunderstanding of what this might mean because I think the example I come back to is this. So Nate Cohen in the New York Times, you might have read it. He had an article saying millennials are just like everyone. They're moving to the right, and it showed that over the last 10 years, so to say, millennial voters swung about 8 points to the right, 8 to 10 points. And, you know, people said, see, that's proof that the GOP will become competitive with millennials. And I said, okay, well, there's two things here. Number one, if you move eight points to the right, do you know how much President Obama won millennials by? In his first election, he won them by 34. In his second election, he won them by 26 or 25. So you're talking now losing a generation by 10 or 15 instead of losing them by 25. And you know how much Republicans win older voters by? They win them by about five points. And so I think just what I want to say is that, you know, as a generation gets older, you might see it as, oh, they're going from, you know, 25-point Democratic to 10 points. But if you're making up a bigger share of the electorate, that's actually worse for you because you're losing more raw votes if that makes sense. They're becoming the share of the electorate that is voting for Democrats at like a 10, 15 point rate is now, let's say, 35% of the electorate, as opposed to young voters right now being like 20% of the electorate. So I think like things like this are kind of what I just come back to. It's that it's not just about the number of, it's not just about the raw number you win or lose them by. It's about. And it's not just about the swings. It's about the share of the vote that they cast. And the part of the reason I think this is so dangerous for a party is because as time goes on, no one lives forever. And the same thing, you know, with millennials, as they get older, they're going to start voting more. And if they start voting more and that's not a friendly demographic for you, eventually you're going to have to reckon with it. And I think that's just the main thing, to also focus on the volume of the vote instead of just the swings.
3: All right and that also brings up another point that I think um, there's a lot of voters that uh vote the way their parents voted right so if you have oh, yeah. if you if you lose uh a bunch of, of voters especially if they're at in in uh childbearing age right so if they they move from one party to another when they have small children then and as they grow up they're they've they've switched to this party, then they also have an influence on that next generation. That's not always yeah. the case, but, but I, think, I think I've seen data where most voters vote the same way as their parents did. I'm, that might not be 100% of the time. Obviously it's not 100% of the time, but so it's all very interesting. But again, it's also people not really looking at fully at the data, finding what they want and, and um, using that for their argument, which is, you know, as old as time. Okay, well, great. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm going to pass it back to David. I know he has some more questions for you. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you having – being on the show. Thank Go ahead, David. Yes,
2: um, I just want to ask one more question, and this was not actually about um, your demographic article, the the, the demographic cliff, the generational cliff. It was actually about something that was just put out in the Scientific American this week. Um, And honestly, I'm not going to ask you to project the uh, voting patterns of toddlers um, 20 years from now. But it showed that um, people in the red states are having more children than people in the blue states. Um, And in the short term, the fact that these will be more parents uh, voting – also, if you have kids, you might be less likely to um, be as mobile, and you may stay in one more in one place. Um, and, and both of y'all can answer this, or just one. What do you think the short-term implications for this will be politically the fact that you're going to have more red state parents than blue state parents, percentage-wise?
0: Harrison, you want to take this or should I? Uh, why don't you take it? Okay, so I think so I think one of the things here is that I, it, if there's going to be any impact, consistently we see that parents are a little bit more conservative, and married people are more conservative than single voters are. I, this shows up again and again in the data. But I don't actually think it's going to make that big of a difference in the immediate short term. Um, I think there's two things about this, right? Number one is the electoral map, so to say. These states you're talking about, and I did see the link on Political Wire, this electoral map, we're talking about states like Montana, like, um, you know, I guess Nebraska, Florida. I mean, this is kind of tough because those states aren't really in play in 2024 or really in the near future. I mean, maybe you could say Florida, but I think we all kind of doubt it. So on the electoral map, I don't think it has much influence at all. And secondly, I think that there's a lot of cross-cutting factors. I think we all like to pretend we're all smarter than we really are, so we want to make these projections about, like, oh, well, birth rates here might might result in, like, you know, some conservatism happening there, or maybe they might become more liberal. I think the thing is just, like, if anything, it probably results in, you know, And a cross-cutting pattern of issues. Now, some folks might settle down in the area, but are the people who are having more children there, are they more democratic than the previous generation of parents? Is that going to build economic activity, which will then spur more migration to those areas? I think these are really tough questions to answer, and I don't think we really have solid answers to them. And so I would say short-term, I'm hesitant to say it will have any impact on the electoral map. Long-term, we would have to look at like 10-plus years before it really begins to make an impact. And I think by then, we just, it's just basically noise at that point. You can't really tell what's going to happen versus what's not. And so I know that's an unsatisfactory answer, but I think the really the only way I can answer it is short-term, no impact. Long-term, maybe, but we don't know which way that will cut yet. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Actually, it's a very satisfactory answer. Uh, before I move on. Harrison, did you have anything you wanted
1: to add? Uh, I was just going to. I mean, Lakshya kind of said what I was thinking in terms of the electoral map. It's it's one of these questions. Um, I guess kind of like looking at the birth rate in general. It's one of the questions that you just have to wait for time to answer in terms of the long term impact. So, agreed with with Loxer.
2: Yeah, and and I guess you know it wasn't Scientific American. So the odds are we have to form a hypothesis and then test and test and retest that hypothesis before we can make any adequate conclusions. So it it will take time to know, and I think it may be more of an interesting um, sociological study than political study in the near term. Well, guys, we thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Before you go, um, if you want to tell people how to first off, um, reads and access Split Ticket, and then from there, if you want to share any other social media links, be our guest.
0: Yeah. Hey, thank there you so best much best for best having best us best. on. We really appreciated the chance to talk to you all and to share our thoughts. And you know, really good, um, really good conversation that we enjoyed. Our Our website is split-ticket.org. And um, our Twitter is um, at split ticket underscores. So, um, you know, if folks want to check us out, that would be great. Um, subscribe for free or anything. Um, we'd really like to just, you know, be able to convey our insights. And we really thank you guys for having us on and to let us talk about this stuff. Yep, many thanks. Yeah. Appreciate
1: appreciate uh, your having us on the podcast today. Uh, and we'd be happy to return anytime you like. It's a lot of fun, so appreciate it.
2: Thank, Thank you both. Yes. Thanks,
0: um,
4: folks.
0: Take
2: care. Yeah. Yeah. Good Good to have lots of Jane uh, on for the second time and Harrison LaBelle on for the first time. Um, we definitely plan to have you all back as you all produce more great content.
1: Thank you. Wonderful.
2: Thank you. Yes. Well, guys, we have about five more minutes, and we're moving our way across the United States. I could tell as long as Arizona took, we were not going to get across the country, and we're not. So um, the next state in line, and we actually talked about it at length the other week, so I think we can adequately just add a little bit for the last five minutes, um, that would be um, Texas. And Texas, I do think, as we said the other day, other week um, is Democrats' best pickup opportunity. Now, before we get into anything, uh, I want to add something new to the uh, to the wrinkle uh, wrinkle to this race. This past week, Uganda came out with just a hideous bill, a, a true human rights violation, where uh, they're going to make homosexuality a crime punishable by death. And Ted Cruz, being a good human, actually did something good this time. And spoke out against this, Um, and he actually took criticism to the right. Um, Catherine, do you think that um, Ted Cruz doing the right thing here and speaking out against a clear human rights violation, do you think he could actually lose enough support on the right uh, that it would make some kind of difference in this race? Tim, I think Catherine may be on mute, so why don't we pass it to you? Um, sorry, I'm Same I'm question, here.
3: though. Oh, okay, okay I'm go here. Ahead, Catherine. I'm sorry. Yes, I was on mute. Um, I think that you know the, the it was a it was a Twitter argument, right? Like people on Twitter were were complaining about him from the right. I doubt, and maybe maybe some other, you know, right wing media, mm-hmm. but I doubt that it's going to have much impact on the voters in Texas. I I don't think it has much of an impact. I agree that it was the right thing to do. I wonder – I always wonder about the um, reasons for making statements like that from someone like Ted Cruz, but, you know, I'm not going to criticize him for it because it was the right thing to say.
2: Yeah, and I will add this. If I'm not mistaken, um, one of Ted Cruz's uh, children has actually – Come out I believe as bisexual Now she's rather young and all that But there may be some kind of You know something happening Around their dinner table Causing him to maybe rethink Some of these positions as well Um, Tim same kind of Question there does this um, Statement and reaction Among the very Hardcore you know in many ways Out of touch right um, Have an implication to this senate race
4: Well, normally I'd say surely, but I'm just going to say I hope so. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's a presidential election year. Donald Trump won this state by about six points. I think most of his voters will hold their nose and vote for Cruz. So I I say it's going to be kind of a tall order regardless of what Cruz does or, or, or says. Uh, especially with a lot of the laws changes they've had out there in Texas, like with regard to Harris County and stuff like that, it's going to be to unseat him. But if he does get unseated, it won't be a Republican-Democratic thing. Don't you think it'll be Ted Cruz himself that
2: causes it? (laughs) Yeah, it's so tricky because, you know, Beto O'Rourke did better against Ted Cruz in 2018 than he did right. against Greg Abbott in 2022, and, and and you know it could be uh, a lot of reasons for that. But you have to think one of us, Greg Abbott was just more likable than Ted Cruz, um, and he remains the constant. And Colin Allred does look like a good recruit, and, and I mean he's giving up yes, a, he is. a safe congressional seat, so he has to think. There's a chance. I mean, if there wasn't like a at least a thirty-three percent chance, unless he just hates being in Congress and thinks Senate looks awesome, why would he do this? Um, well, and, and you so, know, David, you saw the poll
4: that that UT Tyler came out with, and all Reds five points behind him. That's forty-two thirty-seven with a lot of undecideds. It, it's at least in theory. Or not not even thirty in in the realm of possibility that Cruz could lose this thing, right?
2: Yeah, I do think an interesting question that any pollster in Texas needs to ask is how many voters would just not consider voting a Democrat, voting for a Democrat among any circumstances, because that may be the cap there. It may be that you know Texas Republicans or, or independents are just. Sick of folks like Ted Cruz In particular probably Kim Paxton We didn't get to that But Mm -hmm. um, They just do not see themselves Voting for a Democrat And I think that happens in a lot of Red states uh, In a lot of districts and states where uh, They really don't like Toxic Republican But they think Democrats as a brand is toxic And so um, This is a place where Maybe they need a third party candidate uh, for somebody but uh, They're probably not going to get one there Well um, I want to thank Again our folks from um, uh, Split Ticket And coming on and giving us all that great Information about the generational Cliff and um, Next week We've got a really interesting uh, Show we have economist And author Howard Yaris Coming on the show talking about His um, Economics explained book, where he really puts like a lot of economic theories that are super high level into layman's terms and, and describes, you know, tells why you need to know this as a consumer, as an voter. And so, we're going to talk to Howard um, about that next week on the show. Until then, then the Kudzu Vine good night, good night, guys. Good night, everybody. We
1: are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united america still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world america has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history we are the heirs of that
2: first revolution good common sense and sound judgment of the american people and their essential
3: love of justice